From New York City, I'm Adam Teeter. And in Seattle, Washington, I'm Zach Jabal. And welcome to the Vine Pair Podcast. Zach, I'm finally home. Oh, I mean, you must be relieved. <laughs> I'm actually relieved. It was uh, it was uh, two weeks of lots of travel. Um, yeah. But uh, but I, I'm glad to be home. And, uh, you know, New York is now in spring and so beautiful. And next week, uh, I'm coming to Seattle. So I maybe, we'll, maybe we'll record the podcast there. Adam can talk shit about Seattle in Seattle. It'll be way more believable when he's actually been here. Watch. I'm going to go to Seattle and be like, this place is great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you guys are going to be so sick of hearing him talk about it after he's here. Uh, but I, I – so, okay. So I have a I have a thing I want to ask you about because I don't – I think it's a thing I don't really feel like I know about you, which – and I'm and in preparation for your visit, I feel like this is an important thing for me to know. Okay. So do you have a go-to like breakfast or brunch drink? Oh, man. No, huh. you know what I do. You you know though what I uh, is going to really surprise you. I is don't it a hot toddy? Because that will surprise me. No, I don't <laughs> have a go to breakfast or brunch drink. But I think this is probably going to be you know people are going to think that I'm an idiot. But I really don't like Bloody Marys. <laughs> oh, interesting. So not only do Bloody I Mary's not have a a go to, but like I've just never enjoyed bloody marys i saw you post on instagram like a ridiculous bloody mary recently <laughs> it's true um, it did have an entire king I, crab leg in it yeah i just don't like them i like if i wanted to drink you know cocktail sauce i would uh-huh. and i i feel like too like this is i think this has become like also i was thinking about this while i was in italy um and you know this is the same thing with bloody marys there's like this culture in the u.s right now to take any cuisine and just say you know what we're gonna do we're gonna make it as spicy as we fucking can, yeah. and like that's what I think is hilarious about Italian cuisine in general. It's like it's their cuisine is not spicy, but like you go to the trendiest Italian restaurants, whether they be in Seattle or Portland or New York or Chicago or Atlanta or Dallas or wherever, and people are putting like spicy pasta dishes on the menu. Italians don't do spice. Well, the southern so Italians do with spice. Some. I mean, if you, but not, if you go not to like Sicily this, not with or, fucking jalapenos and shit. No, no, no. That's true. But I mean, there's definitely a culture in the south in the south of Italy of, of spicy food. But yes, it, it's certainly true. Calabrian that, chilies, yeah, maybe, but not in the same way. Like every, you know, not like not in the way that some of these dishes are served are. And I think yeah. that's the same for me with the Bloody Mary. It's like I like a Bloody Mary, but when someone, well, actually, I don't. I I can drink a Bloody Mary, but when someone gives me a Bloody Mary that's so spicy that it's actually going to make me throw up from the night before. I just I can't do it. Yeah. Well, I I do like my bloody marys, but I I actually agree with you. To me, like they should be there should be a little spice to them. It's an important part of the drink, but it's not if it dominates like anything, right? You know, we, we talk all the time on this podcast about the value of balance and the the merits of a balanced drink in whatever form. And to me, a bloody mary is one of the drinks that demands it most because there's a lot of weird shit in a bloody mary, and I don't really want to just taste hot sauce or Worcestershire sauce or something else. Um, I do like Bloody Marys to speak of breakfast drinks. The one I can't stand particularly is mimosa. Um, yeah, I figured you were going to say that. I just, I, to you me, know, I I, really if I'm going to drink that. sparkling. I like, Zach hates mimosas. I know he does. <laughs> <laughs> well, because to me, it's like a really good mimosa. Sure. Like you got really good orange juice. Fine. I'm not a huge orange juice fan. I'd probably prefer grapefruit juice, frankly. But um, but really, really good fruit juice and, and sparkling wine. Fine. T- delicious. But to me, like, frankly, most of the time you're getting really, really shitty sparkling wine. You're getting really, really shitty orange juice. And I'd rather just drink good sparkling wine, um, and I do at breakfast a lot. So that's my approach. So Zach's approach, guys, drink really good sparkling wine and 
screw the orange juice. Exactly. Um, and mine is usually like, I, you know, I'm feeling guilty. If I'm at brunch and I drank the night before, I'm feeling guilty. Um, uh. And so I'm like, eh, I don't really want to drink this morning. And if I'm at brunch and I didn't drink the night before, I'm feeling like, you know what? I really want to have a productive day. You know, maybe, <laughs> maybe I'm, maybe I'm going to go to Home Depot. Maybe, you know, I'm going to, maybe I'm going to get some stuff down, you know, Bed Bath and Beyond. Don't know if we'll have enough time. Um, and so therefore I don't want to drink and lose the rest of my day. I'm not the biggest day drinker, but we can get into that on another episode. Yeah. We'll see. We'll, it's around I, sports. I will, I will report back to you all when I, when Adam and I hang out together. Cause I think there'll be some day drinking involved. I'm pretty sure. <laughs> um, Anyhow. <laughs> yeah. Let's, let's jump into, jump in the, 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 the topic for this week. So that's actually like, you know, this is why guys, we really appreciate, um, you know, everyone who listens, uh, because you've all been sending in some really amazing emails, uh, reacting to some of the things we're talking about on the podcast. So email us obviously anytime you want at podcast at vinepair.com. And so we got an email from Peter, uh, a few weeks ago. And so you, Zach, and I have been talking about how we can sort of address this, this idea. So Peter had a question about collecting and whether it's even worth collecting wine, whiskey. Yeah, he actually specifically talk, talking about whiskey, but I think we're going to bleed this into wine as well. But whether it's worth building a collection um, and how one would do that if you were going to build a collection in the first place. And, uh, and so Zach, like, I think you and I actually have some, some differing opinions here. So first of all, I think just on his, you know, initial question, like, is it worthwhile for someone to build a, whether it be a wine spirits, et cetera, collection, like, what do you think? Um, I think the answer is for most people, no. Um, I think for people, oh, so fuck. So now we agree. Thanks. Zach. Well, no, no, Thanks, no. Let me, let me, let me, let me, <laughs> let me elaborate. I have a, a collection, but I also have a collection because as I say pretty frequently on this podcast, I'm a lunatic and I enjoy physically collecting things. When I was a kid, I collected a lot of baseball cards and as an adult, I collect a lot of wine and to some extent other beverages. And uh, to me, part of the appeal is in having the thing. And then obviously the benefit of collecting something like wine is you then actually eventually drink it. And sometimes if you're me, you have a Most hard time people opening. Don't. That's my fucking bitch with it. That's my issue yeah. with it. But keep going. Yeah, of course. And and so I think the, the point is if you are the kind of person who thinks of the idea of collecting dozens or hundreds of bottles or thousands of bottles of wine as something that that you hear that and you're like, wow, that sounds really cool, then yes, I think you should go for it. And there are, I will offer some suggestions in a little bit on how to do that. But I think for most people, what you, what people say when they want, when they talk about collecting or when they talk about a wine collection is they want to have 20, 30, 40 bottles on hand at home so that if they're having people over, they have things to drink. If they're going to someone's house, they have a nice bottle to bring. Maybe they have a couple of bottles for special occasions. But the reality is, unless you are a lunatic like me, you do not need a wine collection because what the hell are you going to do with it? I mean, exactly. for one, where are you going to put it? For two, how are you going to store it? And then, like, how do you ever know when to open the bottles? And so I, I'm going to let Adam continue to complain about wine well, collecting, but but that's my general stance. So, yeah, I mean, I think I, I feel the same way as you. I think – for most people, building a collection is pretty pointless. For me, it's really pointless because I don't have any space. So the only way that I would be able to build a wine collection or a whiskey collection, um, and I'm only really saying whiskey because I don't know of a lot of people, though, if you're out there, email us who collect vodka or who collect gin or things like that. It's usually whiskey and wine um, because I just don't have the space. And two, you know, I'm sort of of the belief that uh, you know, if you want to have wine around, one of the greatest things to do is, you know, buy a case of wine, 
every you know month or so, depending on how quickly you go through wine, and that's your wine that you have on hand. And that's again how you'll learn more about wine because you're going to a great wine shop and asking them to build a case. It's sort of what Eric Asimov was talking about on the podcast a few weeks ago. Um, but I do also think like a, a reason I hear a lot of people want to collect wine and whiskey is for two reasons. One only applies to wine and the second applies to both of them. The first one that applies to wine is that there's this belief that, you know, the wine gets better as it ages. And there are lots of wines that do. Um, however, I don't have the patience to wait for that wine to get better. Um, you know, I, my entire, you know, perspective, which I'd love to chat with you about, um, you know, Zach is that, if the wine, you know, I, I'm getting sick of these producers who tell me that they've made a wine that's going to drink perfectly in 10 years, right? I don't have 10 years to give up my space in my tiny New York apartment for your wine to get better in 10 years. So if your wine's going to get better in 10 years, you fucking hold it in your cellar at your winery for 10 years and sell it to me then. And I'll decide if I want to pr- pay the price you want to charge me for that wine for you holding it in 10 years. That's number one. Number two, a lot of people get into collecting wine and whiskey for the same reasons that people get into collecting art. They, re- they think they're going to strike the jackpot, right? It's the same reason a lot of people got into Bitcoin. And the, you know, my opinion is, and a lot of research backs this up, you fucking won't. It is very rare that you are going to discover the, you know, undiscovered artist. Because that's also when people say they want to collect wine or whiskey for, you know, making money. They're not saying they want to start going out and buying Romany Conti and Lafitte and Pappy Van Winkle. They want to go and find the random wine or the random whiskey that no one has decided is worth a lot of money yet and basically hope that ultimately it is. It's like when you go into a gallery and you're like, I'm going to take a, a risk on this painter and hope that, you know, they get a, you know, a MoMA show down the road and all of a sudden I'm, you know, sitting pretty. Yeah. And for the most part, that doesn't happen. And so I think it prevents a lot of people when they start building collections from actually buying stuff they like, right? They start getting into regions. They start getting into wine styles that they think are popular and that they think other, you know, collectors like with the hopes that eventually they will strike it, you know, rich or do very well for themselves. And they build these ridiculous collections with thousands of bottles and then they never drink them. So no, I'm really, I'm really not into collecting. Yeah, I think you make a really good point about the, the the challenge of collecting. And even if you're collecting for yourself, not a, not even for the idea of resale, it's really, really hard to predict what the market is going to be into in a decade or 15 years or whatever. But it's probably hard for uh, individual wine drinkers to know, you know, are they going to be – what are they going to be into when they come back to that wine in 10 or 15 years if that's the thought process. You know, I definitely have – you know, some of the first wines that I bought when I started my collection when I was in my early 20s. You know, I've opened them and I'm like, eh, you know, okay, it's fine, whatever, I guess. And like, it's kind of an and some are terrible thing. now, yeah, right. Well, it's not even necessarily that they've like gone bad exactly. It's just like you know, like the kind of wine I liked when I was 23 is not so much the kind of wine I like now in a lot of cases. And those wines are probably fine, but like I don't find myself super into them. And I've been like lugging those bottles around with me uh, for years, or you know, you know, I mean, again, as a lunatic, I pay money to store my wine, some of my wine in like a temperature controlled secure location um and you know have i ever gone in there and pulled a bottle out and been like hey eh, you know kind of wasted the money on that one sure and that's again i'm willing personally to sort of run that risk because it is kind of fun sometimes to be able to to have something you know in my collection and i have the ability to do that here um with a little more space um than maybe you do in new york to to, to have things and open them and say oh this is really cool but i agree with you wholeheartedly that 
it is really a bummer that wineries, and it's especially the case here in the U.S. and, and with other New World regions, it's you see it a little um, you see a little bit of that holding wine back thing in Europe um, because Rioja does it really there. well. They're really the only region that I think does it really well as a region for sure. But you do yeah. see some producers in other places yes, who totally, are totally. able to hold stuff back. Um, but here, you know, the, it's really amazing to me. You know, the the sort of there's so many producers in in the U.S. where the wine is released super early. You know, they're, they're trying to get wine out the door for cash flow reasons because, you know, obviously if they don't sell the wine, they don't have any money and uh, they can't make the next, next vintage or whatever. But it really does kind of create this weird thing where they're building wines in some cases. They're making these wines to sort of, yeah, with this idea that they're going to age for a really long time. And then – but they're like, okay, but you do it. Like, good luck. And we don't know. You know, you may have no idea how to do that. You may not have a remotely suitable space in your home or, you know, place to put this wine. But like – it's going to be great in 20 years, trust us. And then people, I mean, I had this experience, I'll, I have a, this experience as a sommelier from time to time where people come in with bottles that they've been holding on to for 20, 25 years and they open them and they're just garbage. You know, they, who knows if they didn't have a, a cool sort of dark place to put it or, you know, who knows what they did with it or if the wine was garbage to begin with. Sometimes they bring in wines I've never heard of and they're like, oh, we bought this 25 years ago and, uh, you know, we were on our honeymoon and I'm like, well, okay, well, we'll give it a shot. And, uh, you know, you just see these people like, oh, this sucks. Yeah, um, I and, mean, and it's just it's, it's an unfortunate thing. But you know, it is. It does also say you know, collecting wine um, more so than collecting whiskey. I think is a little bit of a crapshoot. You know, you don't know that the bot. I mean, again, I also open bottles that are twenty five, thirty years old that are corked, and you're like, well, that really sucks. You know, that you really sucks. This wine was never going anywhere. It was always crap, and so. Um, those are the risks you run, and I think people people think of collecting as glamorous, and and it really isn't. It's not that. It's not really that cool in a lot of ways, um, and especially because I think as you're going to say talk about in a minute, there are lots of other ways to get your hands on older bottles of wine that don't involve, you know, storing them in your apartment or your house totally. or whatever for decades. But the other thing I would say about it is. It's also true that a lot of people don't actually like old wine. We're, we're taught to believe that right. old no, wine really is better, true. and the flavors in old wine. I mean, it's it's just a different experience. You know, I, I have the privilege, I suppose, in my job of getting to try older wine on a somewhat regular basis. And I have a certain palate and I have a certain sense and I, I tend to enjoy some of those older things. You know, the the fact that the wines are really, um, you know, more sort of su- uh, subtle in a lot of ways. They're, they have a balance to them that you don't always see in their youth, but they're not – super intense. They're not exuberant. And a lot of people like that in wine, and I don't blame them. I mean, wines that have a lot of in sort of flavor and are, are big and showy or just, you know, have more of that sort of overt character can be really delicious and are what most people are used to drinking because, as we said, most people drink wine young um, because that's what's on the market. And, yeah. and if you don't like old wine, you're nothing wrong with you. That's totally legit. And you shouldn't collect wine and you shouldn't buy wine that you like now and say like, well, I really like this, but, uh, you know, they told me I should age it. Don't age it. Drink it. Like, there's always more wine, thankfully. And you're better off drinking that wine. I always tell people this. You're way better off drinking the wine early in a stage that you like it, even if it's not what some people would consider optimal, than getting to it after it's past a point where you don't enjoy it because then you're fucked. You drink the wine a little too early and you're like, well, okay, maybe it would have gone a little better. (laughs) But, you know, like, you're way better off just opening it, drinking it, moving on. I mean, look, I think – one thing that I wanted to go back to quickly that you mentioned uh, earlier that I've become a really big proponent of, and I think I can't remember if I talked if I talked to you about this recently. Maybe we were already recorded on a podcast, but I don't think we did. Which is that you know I am a I am a big proponent for buying wine when you travel, and you know that that was amazing and bringing it home with you. And sure, hold on to that those wines for you know some years, right? I have a I have a thirty six bottle wine fridge in my apartment. That's about as big as I could 
handle and there's you know there's there's wines in that wine fridge um from all stages of basically when i you know Naomi, since when Naomi and i got married till now which is you know i think seven years eight years don't kill me Naomi. um <laughs> but so you know but i will say that even with those wines you need to pop them because I had an experience recently where um, we went to uh, Piedmont our the first year we were married. And, you know, it was my first time in Italy. So we did, you know, the general stuff of Rome's up. I hadn't started Vine Pair yet with Josh, um, you know, but I was I was at least in a wine enough that I wanted to go to, you know, one of Italy's most famous wine regions. And so we were trying to choose between Tuscany and Piedmont. We chose Piedmont. We went to Piedmont. Good choice. Yeah, much better choice. Nebbiolo is the best grape on the, on the planet. But um, – I knew that I loved Nebbiolo, but you know I was still young in my wine tastes, and so uh, I want we wound up staying with a producer uh, while we were there because they had a agroturismo, which is legal here, where you can you know you get like sort of a in Italy you get you know a license. It basically says you know I've, I'm an agriculture producer, and so therefore I can have a license to basically have a bed and breakfast on my property. So a lot of wineries do this, and that's how they get around you know, having to get hotel licenses, or whatever. Anyways, bought a few bottles of his wine. Thought I really loved it then. Um, last month we opened one of the bottles and I really didn't like it. Mm. And I realized that was because at the time I was still really into Oak, right? Cause I was uh-huh. a young wine drinker and I thought, that, and there are some, um, you know, Barolo producers who, you know, during the time of Parker moved away from using the really large casks to using really small French barrique and in, in, imposing lots of Oak onto the Nebbiolo. And it was considered at that time, a much more modern style. And now what's modern is, you know, high acid, low oak, but then it was, you know, really lots of oak making a much more powerful Barolo. And so, you know, I thought to myself, man, this sucks because I really had an amazing experience there. Naomi and I loved being there with this winemaker. It was such a special place to stay. And I probably should have drank that wine two or three years after coming back, Mm -hmm. you know, but instead I held the wine for eight years and it was kind of a bummer because I remembered the place, but I was like, oh, but now I'm thinking poorly about his wine. Yeah. And so, you know, pop, pop it. But so, so here's what, you know, but here's what I would say you need to do. If you want to, if you want to get into drinking older wine, I love to go to liquor stores that sell wine. Cause often, especially in New York City, there's a lot of liquor stores. I'm not talking about wine shops. I'm not talking about places like Flatiron Wine and, you know, I'm sure whatever the equivalent is in Seattle where it's run by hipster wine people who know what they have on the shelves. I'm talking about, you know, your corner liquor store that's probably been run by, you know, a family for a long time. And they probably have some wine on the shelves that they just never sold. So often what I will find is those price, those bottle prices are the same as when they bought that bottle 10 or 15 years ago. And if you are good at searching, you can find these bottles and you can buy them. And it is really fun to pop them and see if they are good still. Some of them mm-hmm. will be great. Some of them will be terrible. But because for the most part, when you walk into liquor stores, they don't change the pricing of the bottle, you can get lucky. And I've had, you know, I've told a lot of people this is my strategy. And I've had people tell me, oh my gosh, I did it. And I walked into a place in, you know, Grand Rapids, Michigan. And I wound up getting this like ridiculous burgundy for, you know, 30 bucks that the, that the guy bought, you know, in 1995. Or, yeah. you know, for me, I found some really crazy Bordeaux from uh, 1987 in this random liquor store on the corner of Avenue A and 4th Street. It's all gone now. Um, but it was like, it was ridiculous and he was still selling it for 20 bucks. Wow. 
Because, you know, and so, I mean, I sort of feel bad that I I should have probably told him he should be selling it for more, but I also felt really good. <laughs> yeah. Well, at least, you know, it went to a good home. Yeah. Or like, oh. I'm sure, I mean, you know, I don't do this, but I'm sure you know people that do. There's also all these, you know, online auction sites where you can, uh, you know, you can, you can find stuff. But again, like you just have to know it's all a crapshoot, right? Like, yeah. you know, if you're buying old wine, there's a good chance the wine may not be good anymore. Yeah. And it's very different, I think, when you talk about buying old whiskey. Um, you know, for the whiskey for the most part can't get corked. Um, you know, it, it, it could get tired, right? If someone accidentally – but whiskey, I think you're a little safer. Although, again, I'm not the biggest proponent for collecting whiskey, although I know you have a pretty big whiskey collection, right? Oh, I mean, it's it's not that big. It's it's I mean, I don't know, probably like fifteen or twenty bottles. Um, okay, that's not as big as I thought no, it was. That's actually a lie. <laughs> now that I'm doing the math in my head. It's maybe more like thirty five or forty bottles. But okay, um, that's a it's still not as big as I thought it was. But that's yeah. big. Yeah, it's you know, if it, it it works. Um, but do you, know, you have yours to collect, or do you have yours to drink? Uh, my I mean, there's nothing in there that is like. Let's put it this way. I think of every of all the whiskey I own. Every bottle is open with the exception of like one or two, and that's because they're second bottles of something that I already have open. So I don't I don't believe in – I'm not buying any whiskey with the idea that like, oh, I'm going to not open this and hang on to it for a long period of time. I just like to have a lot of different whiskeys on hand because I like trying them, and I have – I drink a lot of like straight whiskey uh, at the end of the evening, and I, I like to – I have very different tastes depending on what kind of day it's been. So sometimes it's single malt scotch, sometimes it's rye, sometimes it's bourbon. Um, so it's not a forty bottle bourbon collection. It's like a forty bottle just anything brown collection. All, it, well, yeah, whiskey of various sorts. Right, don't get yeah, me started. Yeah, don't yeah, get yeah. me started on cognac. Um, we'll go there some other time. Um, see, that's see, I think that's interesting because I, I that I'm more uh, okay with. I think if you want to have like a bunch of different whiskeys or gins or what have you on hand, as long as you open them, cool. I was never like the kid who you know, wanted my parents to buy me the Star Wars toys and then didn't want to open the package. Yeah. You know, like I or buy the baseball cards in the same way. Like I if I if I got the toy, I wanted to play with it. Me and too. I sort of think it's, me it's, too. it's the, you know, it's the same way. Like it, you can be really into these things um without I think driving yourself nuts. And I think what we're seeing across the board is is this trend is really, you know, shifting. You know, like you talk to producers all the time. You talk to um you know, you talk to our readership all the time that's millennial and they all will tell you like this generation, we're not really building collections. That's why I was also really curious to find this this email from Peter, you know, because I think there are some people that are interested in it, but it's definitely less than it used to be just because also we don't have space, right? Most of us have moved mm-hmm. to cities. So we don't live in, um, you know, in the suburbs with large, you know, homes and basements where we can fill them with wine. Um, and then also, you know, it's this idea of we don't really know, like, what are we collecting it for? You know, like, are we, are we collecting it to resell it? Like all these, I mean, I'm sure there will be other, you know, great bottles that are discovered, but for the most part, like I kind of think the wines that are really expensive today are going to, some might, might stop being expensive, right? Some of like the trendy, I think a lot of the super Tuscans probably will stop being expensive. Um, Mm -hmm. And probably some, some of the Napa cabs, but like classified Bordeaux, first growth Burgundy, you know, I mean, first growth Bordeaux, uh, you know, Grand Cru Burgundy. Uh, Clos Rajard, like those wines are going to continue to be expensive. And so if you can't afford them now, you know, then who cares? And also like if I ever was able to get one of those bottles, I'm popping it fucking immediately. Exactly. I I do want to add one, uh, one quick uh, piece of advice though, for people who are collecting or interested in it, because if, if Adam and I have not dissuaded you from it, uh, uh, 
kudos, go for it. Um, I think the one thing I would say, the one one of the big things that's changed with me and how I buy wine now versus when I started my collection is I really, really, really try hard to buy multiple bottles of anything that I want I agree to collect. With that. Because it really does, you know, it's really hard. I mean, there are exceptions. Sometimes you come across a very, very special wine that you really want to have, but you can't afford more than one bottle of it. And that's happened to me. Or or you're traveling and you can't <laughs> fit more than one or two bottles in your luggage. But for the most part, I feel like my experience as a collector and as a wine drinker has been greatly enhanced by buying a f- by buying two, three, four bottles or occasionally, you know, if it's a little less expensive, a case um, and being able to revisit that wine at various points because nothing teaches you better ab- about how a wine evolves over time than being able to drink the same bottle, um, you know, a few years apart. So you really get a sense for, oh, you know, this is what this this is what aging is like. This, If you can remember what the wine was like before, I take notes sometimes and I would encourage you all to do that, too, if you're interested and if nothing else, like I said, you you get a chance to experience these wines at various points in their life. You get to, you know, revisit. You get to experience. And you don't have that sort of feeling that I have sometimes just like, oh, man, like this better be good now because this is my one shot at it. Um, the last bottle is sometimes that way. But, but you know, yeah. if you've bought a few of them, you, all, you know, you can always go back. And there's nothing better than finding a wine that you really, really like. Um, having a few bottles, opening one, being like, wow, this is delicious. And being like, yeah, and I have three more. And I can drink them, you know, for with other special occasions. Here's my magic number. I think if you do want to collect and you're actually collecting to collect and you think you might want to sell wine down the road, you know, et cetera, the magic number I think is three because three allows you to at least open one of them and experience that wine, whether you want to open it right after buying the bottles, you're going to open it in a few years, whatever you get to open at least one. And then the, the having two others protects you in case one is destroyed, right? One happens mm-hmm. to be oxidized or corked or whatever. And that also protects you in case you open that one bottle out of the three and it was bad. Then you at least have two in which you could open another, right? And then you're yeah. still holding one that you can collect and do what you want with it. And then if you, you know, if you want to resell the wines, I mean, there's, there's not a ton of, you know, places you can resell it. You know, I mean, you're really going to what Christie's, Sotheby's, I don't even know, Zachy's. Yeah, I'm, I mean, you probably have to, and the other, the other thing is, like, unless you have some really, really amazing bottles, you have to have a significant collection to even be able to get into those auction sites. There yeah. are some online ones, but it's not like you can stroll in there with, you know, a case of wine and be like, hey, will you sell this at auction? Like, maybe if your case is, you know, all first growth Bordeaux and Grand Cru Burgundy, they might listen to you. But for the most part, they're not interested in putting your, like, mid-tier California cab no. up for auction. No. So moral of the story, you know, buy wines to drink, you know, um, you know, obviously... If you want to build a collection, more power to you, but don't build a collection, I believe, with the idea that you're going to sell that collection someday for lots of money. Um, Open your whiskeys. Have lots on hand if that's your idea of wanting to change your moods. I actually love that, Zach, that idea that like who knows what you want at the end of the night. And if you're really into whiskey, that's great. But I would dissuade most people um, from, from building a collection. I think building a home bar is really important. I think building a collection is not so much. 100% agree. So thanks so much, Peter, for that question. Um, I'm not sure we gave you the answer you wanted, but hopefully um, it was instructive. And uh, again, it's just our opinion. So if you don't agree with us, I completely understand. (laughs) Shoot me an email and let me know. And uh, thank you, everyone else, for listening. Again, send us your questions, um, podcast at vinepire.com. We love hearing from, from all the listeners. And Zach, I will talk to you next week, maybe in Seattle. Sounds great. Thanks for listening to Vine Pair. We'd love to hear what you think. Feel free to drop us a line at podcast at vinepair.com. And if you really love the show, we'd love if you rate it and leave us a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Reviews and ratings really help other people discover the show. Now for the credits. 
Vine Pair is recorded in New York City at Vine Pair headquarters and in Seattle, Washington at Cloud Studios. Our engineer is Nick Patry, and the show is produced by Zach Jawal and me. Our show logo was designed by Daniel Grinberg. Special thanks as well to the entire Vine Pair staff, including but not limited to my co-founder, Josh Mallon, and our editor-in-chief, Emily Saladino. Thanks so much for listening, and see you next week.